0: Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. hickey
1: And I'm Vinny Damopolito. Today on the Hudson, Mo- Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Blaze Bryant uh, previews an upcoming rally by the New York State Poor People's Campaign. Then, Roaming Labor correspondent Willie Terry speaks with people after a local screening of Rustin. Later on, Cena Basilla hickey speaks with Naomi uh, Jaffe uh, of Troy for Black Lives about why they are organizing a rally for a ceasefire in Gaza this Saturday in Troy. After that, Andrea Cunliffe interviews a player in the Hagen Quartet performing at the Masary Center for Arts at the College of St. Rose on Saturday. Finally, Lavender joins us to interview a leap-year baby. But first, here are the headlines.
0: St. Peter's Health Partners is suing the New York Attorney General's Office over the Attorney General's investigation into the closure of the Bird at Birth Center. Channel 10 reports that St. Peter's claims that the Attorney General's investigation has been a, quote, baseless and overbroad fishing ex- expedition in furtherance of the Ill- illegitimate Predetermined end game, the filing of an action to enjoy the decision. End quote.
1: Albany County Comptroller Susan Rizzo says Albany County District Attorney David Soares should repay $20,100, $20,100 in longevity compensation he's received since taking office in 2005. This is in addition to the 24000 in bonus payments made by Soares to himself that he recently agreed to repay.
0: The town of Moreau has approved a town moratorium that effectively suspends plans for the controversial Saratoga biochar facility in the town's industrial park. The previous town supervisor was voted out of office this past November due to his support for the project. The moratorium deals with updating zoning for the industrial park.
1: Hundreds of State University of New York and City University of New York students were at the capital, uh, at the state capitol Wednesday, to call for six hundred million in increased funding for the state's public college systems. The governor has called for a two hundred million increase in funding.
0: The Gazette reports that the Schenectady City School District is set to announce on March six its new superintendent, with the hire set to be an internal candidate.
1: The city of Cohoes has selected Democrat John Franier for the sixth ward seat on the Common Council. Tom Fifey was pushed to resign from the council after his election since he was a full-time firefighter for the city. There will be a special election for the position in November.
0: New York has officially launched the state's commission to study reparations and racial justice on Thursday, which was created by legislation last year. Once the nine-member commission convenes its first meeting, it will have one year to deliver its findings and recommendations to the governor and the state legislature. Ron Daniels is one of the nine members, which also includes representatives from the NAACP and Urban League.
1: And that's it for the headlines.
0: For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad, grassroots participation.
1: Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm@mediasanctuary.org, at mediasanctuary.org, or give us a call at 518-272-2390.
0: Poor People's Campaign will be holding a campaign rally this Saturday, and correspondent Blaze Bryant spoke with Katie Carroll and Reverend Joseph Paparone to learn more.
2: On March 2nd, poor people's campaigns throughout the country are gathering at their state capitals, advocating for no cuts to services and taxing the rich. Joining me here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine are Katie Carroll. She is a co-coordinator with the Capital Region Poor People's Campaign. Hey, Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, boys. And Joe Paparon, who is a tri-chair. That means they have three co-chairs, essentially for the New York State Poor People's Campaign. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for joining me.
3: Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here.
2: Absolutely. So let's start off by talking about the action and March rally happening on March 2nd. So tell us what we need to know, Joe.
3: Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, please. Uh, So this Saturday, March 2nd, um, not only in Albany, but actually all around the country, 32 states and uh, Washington, D.C., are holding simultaneous uh, state house assemblies, uh, mass poor peoples and and low wage workers, uh, state house assemblies. And our goal with this is to uh, gather together poor and dispossessed, poor and working class people uh, from all over our state, from all over the country to make our voices heard, to lift up a a shared vision and unified demands um, through our state houses and point the way towards uh, an ongoing campaign through the rest of the year um, around uh, voter education and mobilization, uh, as well as just continued organization of poor and working class people. Um, so before I get too far, the details uh, for this Saturday in Albany for our listeners, we're going to be gathering at 10 o'clock at First Presbyterian Church in Albany. That's on the corner of State and Willet Street. Uh, we'll have a short march down to the State Capitol and then a rally at West Capitol Park. Uh, probably about an hour and a half, and then we'll make our way back up to the church for uh, lunch. Shortly after that, um, we're expecting several hundred people. And the unified message around the country is uh, that poverty equals death. Part of our unified demands around the country is that poverty is the fourth leading cause of death in this country. Uh, over, uh, or almost three hundred thousand people are uh, die every year um, due to poverty related issues, that's more than homicide, gun violence, diabetes, or obesity. And of course, depending who you talk to, many of those things can find uh, direct or indirect connections to poverty as well. Um, And this is something that is just not talked about. It's not on the radar of our state legislators, uh, our national legislators. Uh, When we look at the presidential debates from 2020, there were 15 different presidential debates. None of them devoted even 30 minutes to poverty. Um, we have in New York, we've connected this to one of our, uh, recurring campaign, uh, initiatives, a poor people's state of the state, um, where we lift up particular demands at our state level to address poverty. I
2: want to follow up when you say poverty issues, what does that mean? Give us some examples.
3: Sure. Certainly we're talking about healthcare. We're talking about food insecurity. We're talking about, um, environmental and, uh, ecological devastation. Um, we're talking about housing insecurity. Uh, and, and I mean, I could I could go through and give examples on, on nearly all of these things. Uh, one that is particularly um, important to us in New York that we've been following and organizing on is the Medicaid cutoffs of the past year. Um, when COVID started, there was an, a public health emergency declared, and the annual redeterminations for folks um, to determine whether they were eligible for Medicaid were paused. Uh, Medicaid roles expanded uh, hugely. And for a lot of people, this was the first time that they had consistent and solid health care. Even if they'd had health coverage in their jobs before the pandemic, if they lost the jobs and then were able to get on Medicaid, they found out that Medicaid was better than some of the insurance plans that they were offered through their employer. Um, But now, uh, as of last year, that has been ended uh, and the redeterminations have started. And in New York, we've already seen over a million people be forced off of Medicaid. Uh, and this is devastating. Obviously, Medicaid uh, is for poor and working class folks uh, who don't have many other options for their health care. Um, so this is this is a, a major way that our, our policy decisions uh, are, are harmful to poor and working class people.
4: I know Reverend Joe has done a lot um, of advocacy on the specific uh, poverty issue of medical debt. Um, and I think that that issue, uh, provides some really good examples of the precarity that people live in and how so many people are just one, uh, one, you know, medical bill away from being ruined. So um, yeah, I'd love to talk more about uh, what we're doing here uh, in New York and in Albany. Uh, So I love the state of New York, but we in our state, we see a tremendous amount of inequality and inequity. Uh, We have ultra rich people in New York that hold a staggering 6.7 trillion in wealth and at the same time 8.2 million New Yorkers are poor and low income uh, which is unacceptable and so that is why uh, so Joe mentioned the poor people state of the state and that is our take um, and our response to what the governor does every year which is the state of the state. And we uh, we find the state of the state to generally be lacking in the way that it addresses uh, the intense and pervasive needs of poor and low income people. So uh, we and we hear messaging every year um, coming from the governor's office, from our state uh, our state legislative leaders that you know it's going to be a tough budget year. It's going to be a tough budget year. We you know, we're going to have to find savings. We're going to have to cut, you know, this or cut that, and we simply do not find that acceptable. And so, we are demanding that there be no cuts to life-saving services. That we fully invest in our communities, and we make the rich pay their fair share, uh, because we can eliminate poverty if we just uh, our our state budget um, is a values document. It it basically outlines where we are going to put our priority, and we have deprioritized poor and low income people. Um, I'm going to flesh out um, our demands a little bit more and say that we are refusing the politics of austerity, which is what I talked about, you know, this idea that we don't, we simply do not have enough, and we, uh, you know, the pie is not big enough, we, we just can't meet people's needs. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, uh, what, what else can I say? What, what else can I answer for you?
2: Right. And when you Think about it, Katie Carroll and Joe Paparone with the Poor People's Campaign. They're joining me, Blaze Bryant, here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. There are, what, something along the lines of about 120 billionaires that we're asking, or the Poor People's Campaign is asking to be taxed among other organizations that really, in the grand scheme, when you talk about the amount of people who hold all the wealth— versus the amount of people that are impacted really isn't that much and shouldn't be that much of an ask in your opinion right that's
4: exactly right
3: we, we had an opportunity uh to meet with uh the legislative offices of the senate majority and minority leaders at the state senate so andrea stewart cousins our senate majority leader and robert ort uh, the minority leader um, the assembly speaker and the minority leaders offices did not get back to us to meet we would have met with them too uh, but one of the remarkable things, as we talked with them about these issues, uh, that we we lifted up and pointed out, is that it's not partisan, right? Like when you look at the the layout of poverty around our state, you've got if if you only went by the the Democrat Republican you know color coded map, that that actually doesn't tell you very much about who is poor in our state, where poverty is. Um, you know the the highest count the counties with the highest poverty rates are the Bronx County down in New York City. And then it's sometimes it trades, but uh, uh, Montgomery or St. Lawrence County uh, up in central New York and the North Country are, are often uh, competing for that, right? Um, we have upstate cities that have some of the highest rates of child poverty in the country, and at the same time, massive rural poverty as well. Um, and th- so this is something that cuts across these partisan divides. Uh, and then additionally, I think relating to our poor people's state of the state, um, there have been some good policies that have been passed in recent years uh, at our state level. And yet, if you are engaged and connected with people who are struggling, poor and working class people, uh, whether you're at a, you know, a food pantry or a soup kitchen breakfast program, or I'm, I'm often spending time with folks who are living on our, on our streets in Albany, uh, the conversations around these policies that happen in the state capitol versus what people need on the street are just so wildly, wildly out of touch. So, you know, we were hearing these legislative staffers defending their bosses' records, rightfully so, and yet there's so much more that's needed. Um, and, and part of our messaging for this action on Saturday, too, is that uh, poor and low wage workers uh, can be a powerful political force if they can be organized uh, and, and bring, their, bring their demands to the ballot box. Um, that's a complicated thing. And uh, this time, uh, you know, with the the various positions that legislators are taking uh, up and down the ballot, um, and yet we know that uh, organized poor people can be a powerful political force to to shift elections and and eventually shift policies.
2: Katie, thirty seconds. Tell people how they can get involved with the Poor People's Campaign.
4: Uh, please show up on the second, um, and and we will <laughs> we we will we will get you what you need um let's see we are at nys for new york state ppc.org um all of the information is there um and i, I really look forward to sharing our what will be our uh, poor People's state of the state report as well um but all of the information about our demands um the campaign how to get connected is there
2: we'll have to leave it there and once the report is out we'll talk again joe paparone and katie carroll Thank you both for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you.
2: Thanks, please.
0: That was Blaze Bryant. And the rally will be going on from this uh, Saturday, March 2nd, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church at 362 State Street in Albany.
1: On Friday, February 23rd, 2024, the Arts Center of the Capital Region hosted a Black History film, Rustin, the film was about Bayard Rustin, the architect of the 1963 March on Washington, where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous "I Have a Dream" speech. Roaming Labor Correspondent Willie Terry interviewed some of the audience members at the preview, including the NAACP President Renee Powell, about the film.
5: This is Willie Terry, a Roaming Labor Correspondent, and I'm here at the uh, Troy Art Center, where they're having a film called Rustin. It's a new film that's out. We are having a premiere tonight for Black History Month here at the Arts Center. And I have uh, some of the people who are in the audience, and I'm going to ask them some questions, you know, about it and see what they think. And I have right now, uh, her name is?
6: Doelle Harrell. All
5: right. How you doing, Doelle? Hi. All right. So, Dora, what do you know about Rustin?
7: I just okay. recently found out about him. I know that um, he was like an activist and he w- worked with Dr. Martin Luther King so I'm here to find out more about him because it was very
5: interesting right. he, He's not one of the traditional people that, that's out there that a lot of people know about Right, right. right. exactly right. We, we, I never heard of him Right. You know,
7: we heard of the other ones right. you know, like Abernathy and different <laughs> things but
5: never him so mm-hmm. I'm interested to find out Right, so you go get some education in that. Uh huh. Mm-hmm, uh huh. Okay. And I also have my What's here, your name? Emily Kenna. And how you doing, Emily? I'm good. How are all you? Right, all right, So Emily, why did you come tonight? To, to um, school? same. I had again, you know, a figure in history that I had not known about before, and uh-huh. I'm here to learn more. All I, right. you know, basically the, as much information as I had before now is that he was an advisor to Martin Luther King. Right. And I'm here to learn more. Okay, well, learn more. All right. And who's
8: in the have here next to I am Danielle Kilmer. And how
5: you doing, Danielle?
8: I'm doing good. All right.
5: So, Danielle, why are you here
8: tonight? I'm here to learn about Rustin. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know a lot about him, and I was actually at the showing of The Color Purple with Emily, oh, okay. and we saw the previews for it, and I said, you know what? When Then when the flyer came out, I said, I'm going to go see it and learn more about it. Okay. So,
5: so do you know any other... Civil rights people that you that you have. I know. I mean, you don't know Rustin, but you know, because a lot of people don't know. But what about some, you know any others? Um. You know Martin Luther King. I know Mark. Uh, Mar- yeah. Know.
8: Okay. <laughs> I know Martin Luther King. Um. Oh. I know of Malcolm X. Oh. I know. Um, not a lot. Um, I mean, it, and it's it's sad because it, going to school, they didn't really. Tell us a lot. Right. I went to a, a Caucasian school, so I was like one of five black families. So um, we didn't really get taught any of the history. So it, yeah. it's good to, you know, come to stuff like this to right. learn.
5: And you just mentioned uh, Malcolm X. name, you know, uh, I think February the 21st, which was, uh, yeah, February 21st was the day Malcolm X was assassinated.
8: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. See?
5: Yeah. I, this is. In the Alden Ballroom in Harlem. Oh wow. And also Malcolm X and and uh Bernard Rustin, they debated. Ooh. You should go on the internet and hear that debate. I it's will a good debate. Okay. You know, I, I didn't know that the two had knocked heads But uh I think he knocked heads with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. But, you know uh, and I think Rustin held held his ground mm-hmm. with Malcolm X. I mean I, I was surprised, but yeah. He was a very intelligent person. Yeah. But going on and Rustin and Malcolm. All right, thank you. Right. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. Right. Yeah, and I have uh, in the audience here. Her name is uh, Angie Morris. Ange Morris. Yeah. And how you doing, Ann? I'm doing good. How are you, sir? All right. And Angela, I, you say you're gonna be uh, the MC
7: tonight? Well, I'm gonna be moderating the, uh, oh. the panel discussion after the movie. Yes. Oh, okay.
5: And and what do you know about Russell? Because he's not one that's out there. What do you know about uh, Russell, Russell? Yeah. So uh, Russell, mm-hmm. he was
7: the. My I want to say he was the architect um, yeah. in the March on Washington. He basically was okay. with Martin Luther King. He was with him. During now in March, but he was one that coordinated the efforts. It was his idea mm-hmm. to have the march on Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a he was a figure with Martin Luther King's um, inner circle, if you want to say. He a lot of people don't know that he was the ones that kind of wrote Martin Luther King's speeches.
5: Oh, okay.
7: Yeah, mm-hmm. and. Uh, he was very instrumental in putting together the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a little piece of history that a lot of people, mainly, especially African Americans, don't know about the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. During the civil rights movement, there was a lot of people behind the scenes that was very instrumental in putting in legislation and things that we are living in now, that back in the day, was not the forefront. Um, There was Martin Luther King, who is at the forefront. Um, You had Malcolm X. You had also the NAACP played a very strong role in helping African-Americans achieve those legislations um, and those bills that went to Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was Bernard Rustin that was the one who played a vital role in uh, coordinating the March on Washington.
5: You know, and, and yeah, I, I agree. And he's not one that's out there. Right? He that's wasn't
7: right. the one out there, right? And the thing is, too, you know, he was he was homosexual. Right. So back in those days, that was like a taboo. taboo right? But he was he played inter, he played a vital role in getting the march on Washington. Um, and the community, as you want to say, the LGBT right. community uh, behind right. Malcolm X, Ma- uh, Martin Luther you know. No, he, he, he was he was
5: very a very
7: he was he was a very skilled yeah. organizer, yeah. labor organizer. Yeah. So um, this movie is going to show people how to come together um, with uh, with labor unions, with local churches, mm-hmm. utilizing those. Organiz- those grassroots organizations as well as grassroots skills and strategies to bring uh, many people millions of people together around a common cause mm-hmm. and so he did that and he goes down in history as the architect for the March on Washington. Right
5: and, and I agree and, and I think uh, and I did a little research on and a lot of other things that he did he was a uh, he was a part of a lot of other organizations. I mean,
7: he was. And, he and, was. And also
5: part in creating
7: those organizations. He was. The uh, CLC. Yep, the CLC. The CORE. Speak. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, but also, you know, there's, he has, uh, some say, uh, if you do some research on him, background with socialism, communism. Right, right. But his main role with, with Martin Luther King was to address those issues regarding labor and put those strategies into play that Dr. King didn't even realize that he had a skilled, brilliant mind and people thought it was King, but it really was. Bernard Rustin. Right, right. The
5: yeah. yeah. man, man behind the curtain. Man. <laughs> so, yes, he one was. One, one, two, one. Right, thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Right. And I'm here with uh, Renee Powell, who's the president of the uh, Troy NAACP. And how you doing, Renee? I'm doing great, Willie. Right. So, Renee, after the film, uh, what are your thoughts on, on Rustin? I, my
9: thoughts on Rustin. Rustin, the man himself, was phenomenal. Brilliant man, very strategic, very dedicated uh, to the
5: quality of life of all people, and uh, a phenomenal organizer. And Renee, you had mentioned some. I mean, during the question-answer period, that you was uh, you remembered the march on Washington. What, what was that you were saying? So at the time
9: of the march on Washington, I was about five, six years old, And that just goes to show you how things impact youth, how trauma can impact you. Not that that event was traumatic, but I remember the energy in Washington, D.C. during that time. That's where I grew up. And my father went to the march, and he was preparing to go, and I was excited about him going, and I wanted to go. Um, But because of my age, he did not allow me to go. But he did go to the march, and later on during the day, None of the kids were outside. We were all in in the home, in our homes, watching the event on TV, listening to the speech. And to this day, and I'm well over 60, I remember that that day, that event. And Renee, I know y'all talked about, in the the, uh, question and answer period, about a follow-up. So, yes, as a follow-up, what we've gotten out of this through discussion is that we need to do more on voter education. And so we're planning to do a voter education sessions during the summer. We're going to look at policies that are on on the books that affect us locally and educate voters uh, about the potential candidates' positions on uh, these different um, Laws that are on the books For example we I do know that something is coming up Dealing with the uh, drug dealer's uh, re- uh, Register That's being put forth In uh, through the Rensselaer County legislatures, and so we, we have a concern about that. And so that's something that the entire community needs to have a discussion about, be educated on, to understand how that's going to affect them and, and the community. All right, Renee, thank
5: you. You're welcome. Thank you, Willie. Renee Powell, uh, Troy N W C P President.
0: And that, those interviews were by Roaming Labor correspondent Willie Terry after a recent screening of the film Rustin. That event was sponsored by the Troy and Team Hero and the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Cena Bazila-Hickey.
1: And I'm Vinny Domopolito. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM-TROY w o o g l p 92.7 fm troy w o o s l p 98.9 fm schenectady w o o a l p 106.9 fm albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org this program comes from the sanctuary for independent media in troy new york
0: if you like what you hear you can support this program by sharing our content find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org
1: We previously heard about the Poor People's Campaign rally taking place on Saturday, and next we'll hear about another rally taking place this Saturday. This one is in support of the ceasefire in Gaza.
0: This Saturday, March 2nd, 2024, is the Global Day of Action demanding hands-off RAFA, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Organizing the action in Troy is Troy for Black Lives And member Naomi Jaffe joins me now. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have media on our side. So people around the world will be showing up and speaking out in support for a ceasefire in Gaza. What will be taking place in Troy?
10: Rafa is where millions of, where uh, over a million uh, Gazans have fled To try to survive in the face of an unprecedentedly horrific genocidal um, ongoing onslaught by Israel. So, we will be gathering Saturday morning uh, at 3rd and Fulton. And we'll be rallying and speaking out about why and how to fight against this genocide, why and how millions of people around the world are doing the same thing at the same time and then we'll be doing a a short march around troy and in particular talking a bit about why troy why troy why troy for black lives um we
0: know why gaza we know why rafa so why troy for black lives why is troy for black lives hosting this day of action
10: So let me just back up one minute and say what probably most of your listeners already know, which is just a word about the horrifying genocide that is taking place at this moment. Uh, Again, people may know this, but we have to say it over and over and over again. More than 30,000 people have been, more than 30,000 Gazans have been killed by Israel's onslaught. More than 12,000 of those are children A million people have been displaced. The entire infrastructure of Gaza has been destroyed, homes, hospitals, schools, mosques, places of worship, all agriculture and all sources of food and water. The environment has been degraded to a point where it's not clear that it can ever be restored. So a level of devastation and horror has been unleashed by Israel on Gaza since October 7th, And we, along with millions of people around the world, are outraged and trying to do everything that we can at this moment to stop it and to prevent the further onslaught, in particular on, on Rafa, where a million people have taken refuge and are crowded into a small space with thirst and starvation and failure of any medical, any ability to care for the wounded and dying as weapons of war. And so we are part of a global response to that. And why Troy for Black Lives? And that is because the saying that no one is free until everyone is free is global. The Troy for Black Lives is very committed to that and committed to an understanding that the lives and well being of our people, particularly our Black and Brown people in Troy, are connected to the lives and the survival of people in, around the globe, and in particular at this moment, in particular in Palestine, because there is a global system of racism, white supremacy, capitalism, whose headquarters are here in this country. And to us, The way that we understand those connections is very specific, not just general. The ways that our own people's lives in Troy are threatened, are under attack, are taken away. There's not exactly an equivalence. We're not in the level of state of crisis that we're talking about, but there is a connection. And one of the reasons that we're making this, that, that Troy for Black Lives has called this demonstration in Troy is to make those connections more obvious. So for example, the way that life is not valued by this system has these parallel examples in both places. So first of all, life itself is not valued. And one of the things that we are going to talk about at um, this rally is one of the most recent examples is that the, over these past weeks was the first anniversary of the killing of Sabi al Kawi by Troy police in a car. So that was one of the latest examples of the way our own city doesn't value the lives of our own people. And we're gonna talk about the ways that this city has targeted people's lives from Edson Thevenin to Sabi al-Alkawi. And the way that genocide in Palestine reflects this devaluing of people's very lives. Um, Shelter, the right to shelter the way that homes are destroyed in Palestine, the way that homelessness is widespread in this country and also in Troy, again, particularly targeted at Black and brown people, again, globally, particularly targeted at non-white people. So part of a system of racism, part of a system of greed and power decimating the lives of people here at home and around the world. So Food, one of the things that we want to focus on in this particular rally is food, starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza, and um, and food injustice and food insecurity, widespread in our own community, homelessness and food security very tied to each other in our own communities. So we want to talk about those connections, medical care. People just had a, this huge outpouring of fighting for um, a birthing center in our in our region. We don't have by right to medical care and particularly for for poor and marginalized and people of color in this country. And in Palestine, we have the total destruction of a system of, of medical care. So when I say parallel, I'm not just talking about things that look alike. I'm talking about things about people's lives that are attacked from the same place. So we are saying that the that the US is not just an auxiliary to the slaughter in Palestine. The US is, has primary responsibility. That slaughter in Palestine couldn't go on for a day not just if the US didn't help Israel, but if it wasn't US policy based on the perceived interests of whoever runs the US. So when we say when we when we make these parallels between these two things we're not just saying that they look alike we're saying that they come from the same system and that we have to fight them as the same system and what follows from that is that the way that you fight the system is through global solidarity that we're not the burden of having to think internationally also gives us the opportunity to be engaged in international solidarity in a way that provides the possibility of a path to freedom. We
0: couldn't do it by ourselves. What is the power of local grassroots actions? Uh, The power of
10: local grassroots actions is to show through the eyes of our own experiences, is to expose the roots of the injustice of the system through our own experiences, to understand from our own experiences, what the system is and how solidarity is the way to fight it. Global so sol- solidarity
0: is a way to fight it. And solidarity meaning also creating a local network. So is that what yes. you mean?
10: Yes, building the strength of our local networks and connecting them. Um, and this fight about Palestine is as clear an example as we've had of the way that global solidarity exposes and and helps to change the existing system of power
0: naomi jaffe thank you so much for joining me to talk about troy for black lives and this saturday's action would you like to leave our listeners with anything
10: just would be would love to see you on saturday at 11 o'clock in the morning and at fulton and third to show our global solidarity and our
0: solidarity with the people of our own community, um, and to fight back. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Naomi Jaffe, and there will be some coverage from the event to hear more about what people think about Gaza, Israel, and ceasefire.
1: And now we turn to Andrea Cunliffe, who sat down with Rainier Schmidt, the violinist of the Hagen Quartet. The group is coming to the Masry Center for the Arts at the College of St. Rose on Saturday, March 2nd, uh, 2024, at 3 p.m. Declared the pinnacle of musicality by Depressa, the Hagen Quartet will be playing famous works by Haydn, Beethoven, and more.
6: I'm Andrea Cunliffe, and it's my great pleasure to welcome and spend some time with Renier Schmidt of the Hagen Quartet.
11: Thank you very much for having me.
6: I know that the Hagen Quartet is extremely famous. It began, what, in 1980. Do you want to give me a little history about it?
11: Of course, I can tell more my history, which started in 87. But the history, of course, which I understood over the years is, um, they all started very early. And from very early age, maybe that is more important point, is that they play together. Originally, There were four siblings, and the oldest one, Angelika, she decided at a certain point to do something else with her life for whatever reason. So she became an ethnologist. And from very early on, they played together, not just rehearsing, but went to houses for the elderly and, and hospitals and this kind of thing. So very early on, also, they had the experience of performing in public. It was their father, who was a musician himself, but it is not the usual story where there is so much pressure involved. I think he just realized at a certain moment that the kids were more talented than usual. So from then on, he tried his best to support what they were doing on their respective instruments.
6: The original quartet was the four children lucas is the lead violinist and veronica played the viola and Clemens is the cellist
11: yes the youngest
6: and they've been playing together since since childhood
11: uh, one can say since 50 years 50 plus years
6: how did you meet them
11: i was in 86 visiting vienna as a student in hanover in northern germany it was time for me to move on and try out another teacher. So I was there in Vienna looking for teachers listening to lessons. And the Hagen Quartet and me, we had a, already a great mentor in independently from each other, which was Hato Bayerle, the violist of the Ivan Berg Quartet. I stayed in his house and the Hagen Quartet stayed in his house. And we had dinner together. There was one lady, Annette big between the older sister Angelica and me. So it was Annette big playing the second violin. So when she or decided to quit, then the Hagenquert had apparently right away thought of me and they would like to try me out just because they felt personally that it would work out well. And they must heard something about me so that they didn't think um, something random, but they thought, it could work out very well. And so I think from the beginning, they liked the fact that I could contribute something which they were all very interested in. And it worked out very well. Obviously, I had to learn very much how to play the second violin with them. But at the same time, they liked that I could contribute something of myself.
6: I don't think we mentioned that the Hagen Quartet is... Originally from Stuttgart,
11: is that right? No, from Salzburg.
6: Oh, right, Salzburg, sorry.
11: Salzburg and Austria. Yes, they are very Salzburgian. All were born there and lived there. And, yeah. and you are originally? I'm originally from northern Germany. But I was only 22 when I moved to Salzburg. So, yeah, My a long goodness. time ago.
6: The Hagen Quartet. Three members of the family and yourself. I wonder what that's like. The family would live together, play together, work together. What's that like? Have you become like a member of the family?
11: I would think so. So there are different aspects to to this question. Um, From the beginning, I felt that uh, Papa and Mama Hagen, the parents, really welcomed me into the family. And particularly with the mother, um, she's still alive, but now very old. I had a very um, heartfelt relationship with her. Um, I think she instinctively felt that it must be not the easiest task to play with three siblings, because, of course, they are are born together differently than uh, when you come from outside. But on the other hand, I must say, they never let me feel that. And you see, when I go to rehearsal tomorrow, I don't necessarily think at all about that. They are two brothers and a sister, and also they are very different from each other. Um, so we are just four members of the same quartet who will try tomorrow in, in the concerts to make the best out of what we can the family is not a big factor in our daily life at all.
6: As in any organizing group, or quartet, whatever, personalities do have an influence on how the music is interpreted, how you all play together. Is yes. there something maybe magical or, or exceptional in the group that you're with?
11: If it is magical, uh, I feel it is not up to me to say that. What I... That is almost maybe only possible for an outsider to see if there's something like that. What I can see is that over the years has become probably even stronger that we all have our own part to give in rehearsal time. So over the years, it has kind of crystallized that each one of us has maybe a little bit different priorities what we want to hear in the end so what we would bring in into the process and if there is something magical but i would first say important is um that we would respect each other this word to respect cannot be overrated i think for any quartet but particularly if you are playing so many years with each other many years you
6: play a germanic repertoire
11: I wasn't aware of that. But when I see what we bring on the tour, um I can see it is a lot of Viennese classic. But we don't think about it in a way that we feel we prefer to play this music necessarily. We love as much to play Ravel or Bartók than we love to play Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven. But in the end, there are quite a few very, very, very good Haydn quartets and quite a few very good Beethoven quartets and of course, quite a few wonderful Mozart quartets. So when we have to make the choice, it is very likely that one of them would end up in one of our programs. With Mozart, for instance, particularly the, the ten later ones, uh, which we play frequently, they they always have been, and I believe strongly there always will be some of the reference pieces when mm-hmm. it comes to, to classical music. And each time, I would say, we discover another way how to approach it. Oh. It offers many possibilities, even 200 years after they were written.
6: Oh, really? So each time you pick it up and, and play it? You find something new
11: yes yes how exciting yes. is that
6: i'm trying to imagine what that would be like
11: how can i say if some one of us comes to a rehearsal and through experiences outside of the quartet an analysis class or whatever it was anybody who could enrich the view towards the quartet um, i never never heard it once in the quartet that someone would have said, Oh, let's play like we always played. That would never be the case. It could be always interesting and welcomed, for sure.
6: Well that sounds exciting.
11: Yeah. Very exciting.
6: The Hagen Quartet is playing at the Mastery Center for the Arts in Albany on March the second. You have a program, is there a particular outlook you have regarding the program that you'll be playing for us?
11: We are we are doing that, as I am doing that, almost with the three Harden family members since almost 40 years. Mm. And the others have been playing even longer. We like to do now, and we can afford to do, what is really closest to our heart. And that definitely, I can say that every one of the pieces we're going to perform is an incredible masterpiece, which you can spend th- three lives on doing. That, I would say, is the outlook for us, that we chose pieces which, which are very important to us.
6: I thank you so very, very much.
11: Thank you very much.
6: This has been Andrea Kamlev speaking with Renier Schmidt
0: of the Hagen Quartet. That show is this Saturday, March 2nd at 3 p.m. For more information, the website is friendsofchambermusic.org.
1: And now we're joined by Lavender to take on this next story. Thanks for joining us, Lavender.
12: Oh, there we go. All right. We're here now with my best friend's cousin, Sarah. Sarah born on February 29th during a leap year is here to talk about this unique day and hopefully make it less confusing for everyone. Uh, thank you, Sarah. And happy birthday. Thank you so much. Awesome. So start us off with what the heck is a leap year?
13: So as far as I know, it doesn't really make any sense to me either, but <laughs> I guess every year is 365 and a quarter days. So they just tack on the extra day every four years. Um, and I guess February was the best, the best month to do it since it's so short. <laughs> but that's why we have the extra day.
12: Gotcha. And so how do you know how old you are? And uh, how old do you tell people that you are?
13: I always I mean, I always tell people my actual age, like I celebrate a birthday every year, but it's always fun to say, um, you know, like if somebody notices I was born on the 29th, I'll always say, oh, but I'm really seven or I'm really eight. um, And it always gets a laugh out of people. Um, I just told somebody about it today because they were asking, well, how old are you really? And so I said I was eight and it always gets, you know, a reaction out of people.
12: That's funny. Um, Do you know anyone else born on February 29th?
13: I met one other person, um, like in all the time I've been alive, I met one kid like when I was in elementary school. Um, But I think... Um, Jiao Rule actually was born on the twenty ninth as well. So I share a birthday with Ja Rule. <laughs>
12: <laughs> cool. Uh yeah, I'm pretty sure you're the only person that I know who was born on this day. Uh do you happen to know the odds of being born on the twenty ninth? It seems pretty rare. I know it's
13: really rare. I remember once I looked up like what the rarest birthday is. I know it has to be today, but I think it was um, like when I looked up, they didn't even count February 29th as a birthday, which is really odd. But I know it's I mean, I know it's really low. I went to I was actually at Disney World today. And usually you see people all over with like birthday buttons. And I maybe saw like a handful of people today.
12: Oh, wow. Well, that's cool. At least. um you mentioned uh that sometimes the 29th isn't even an option that actually leads into one of my questions which was like a lot of forms or sites which will uh a lot of forms or sites will automatically determine your age uh, once you enter your date of birth um in like a form is that experience any different for you uh being born on a leap year
13: it is actually because I will normally have to put in the year first, because if I don't, if I end up putting in February 29th first before I put the year, it'll usually say the date is invalid. And just <laughs> a so few funny. years ago, I I know. And just a few years ago, I started putting the 28th for everything that's not like super important, like documents, because uh, I was signed up for some rewards program with, an, with a company and I never got their like birthday reward because that year I didn't, there happened to not be a 29th. So most of the time I'll put the 28th, unless it's something really important, um, because I've just noticed that sometimes it just won't even get recognized.
12: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That sounds like we need some some reform here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that leads into a question that one of my colleagues was wondering about. Um, did you have any trouble registering to vote or getting a driver's license, perhaps? Something like that? No, yeah, not at all.
13: Um Nothing like that. The only thing, um, when I turned twenty-one, there wasn't a February twenty-ninth. But wherever I went that day, I went out to dinner with my family. But they let me have a drink like a day early because I normally celebrate on the twenty-eighth. But I've never had any trouble um, with anything like that. Gotcha.
12: Yeah. So, so how do you calculate your birthday? Do you? So when it's not a leap year do you like celebrate on March 1st? And do you just keep adding 365 days or in a quarter? Like, how do you, how do you calculate your birthday?
13: I just do it like every year. So I usually celebrate on the 28th and I just do it by year. So I was born in 92. This year I turned 32. Um, But like, if I'm, you know, messing around with people, I'll say you know, that I turned eight this year because I've ha- I've only really had eight real birthdays. So every four years, but I usually just say, you know, just like I've had a birthday every year. So that's how I
12: calculate it. Gotcha. Um, my, uh, my colleague's typing a question right now. Um, <laughs> it's so uh, about when you celebrate. So, um, he, he asked, was it impatience for birthday gifts that made you choose the 28th instead of March 1st?
13: (laughs) I guess in a way, because, you know, I, people always ask me if I celebrate on the 28th or the first, but celebrating on the first makes no sense to me. I think there, I, I don't know if there are any leap year babies that celebrate on the first, but why wait another day? I just think, you know, keep it in the same month. You get to celebrate a day early, um most of the time I when there's not a leap year I will celebrate the 28th and the first as well so you know just to keep it going (laughs) so I guess in a way it kind of is (laughs) (laughs)
12: um that leads into another question about celebrating um from another colleague as well with an official birthday only every four years how are you celebrating today you said you went to Disney are you going big
13: yeah. I, so I try to do something big every four years. Last year I, or last, um, you know, four years ago, I went to New Orleans. It was like right after Mardi Gras, we spent the whole weekend in New Orleans. And this year, um, I live in Florida. I live in central Florida, like not far from Disney we have annual passes. So, uh, just been a regular tradition of mine to spend my birthday in Disney. And Disney they used to do they would stay open for a whole 24 hours on my birthday they haven't done it in a long time hopefully they'll bring it back one day but I do really like to go to Disney for my birthday
12: yeah um that makes sense because you are Amber's cousin and boy does she love Disney oh yeah she does
13: (laughs) even more than me
12: (laughs) what is something um you want people to understand about leap year birthdays, that uh, maybe a lot, maybe many people don't.
13: Um, I guess one thing. So, <laughs> I think uh, I come into a contact with a lot of people that will say, you know, like on the three years that there isn't a February twenty ninth, they'll say, "Oh, well, you don't really have a birthday this year." But I don't think that's really fair to say, because <laughs> I still, you know, I'm still going around, you know, the sun one more year, just like everybody else um, It's just I'm celebrating on a different day. So I guess it's just that, you know, we even if there's not a 29th, we still have a birthday every year.
12: We still get to celebrate. <laughs> yes, you still age. <laughs> yeah. You like it or not. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, we still age. <laughs> um. Awesome. We have we have a couple minutes left. Um, I really appreciate you taking this time uh, to do this on your special day. Um, what is your favorite Disney attraction that you went to today?
13: So they have a new Guardians of the Galaxy ride that opened. I think it opened sometime last year, but it's really one of a kind. I haven't been on anything else like it. It's a roller coaster, but it kind of it moves in all different directions. It's kind of like a little bit of both, like it's indoor, like virtual. Um, But that's like my one thing I really like to go to at Epcot. We actually didn't go on any other rides today. We kind of enjoyed the Flower and Garden Festival and had some drinks and food and just went on that ride and we're on our way home now. Um, But that ride is really, really great. It's worth a visit to Disney just for that.
12: (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Um, Disney, of course, is uh, every kid's dream. When it, did you, when you were a kid, did um, did you understand what was different about your birthday? Did you understand that it was a leap year and that it only came every four years, or how did your parents explain it to you?
13: Yeah, I mean, for a lo- as long as I can remember, I remember celebrating it that way I remember there was a lot when I was a kid that they would do like special too. like I remember build a bear they gave out like t-shirts and you would get like a free bear if you're a leap year baby I don't remember what the t-shirt said but it said something along the lines of like you know like a leap year thing um so I always understood it I think at some point when I got older I kind of googled like why is there a leap year and things like that but it's always kind of like my icebreaker when i'm in new groups to like to tell people that i was born on leap year it's like my interesting fact about me
12: gotcha um and we got a new question in from my partner over here if he wants to know if it was up to you would you get rid of leap years slash leap days um
13: i don't think so i think i would just i don't know if there was a way to you know let i guess maybe add a a 29 to every year so maybe that is getting rid of it in some kind of way but um i think i'm just kind of um over people telling me there's you know i don't have a real birthday like three out of every four years
12: (laughs) yes well you do have a birthday and happy birthday (laughs) to you and thank you so much for taking this time on your birthday to do this interview um and thank you to amber uh for connecting us and with that, I will let you go and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, and that was uh, Lavender with Sarah, whose birthday is today, February 29th. We hope you learned something about leap year birthdays.
0: And yeah. that is our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazil Hickey.
1: And I'm Vinnie Dama We thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. This is a team effort. Today's contributors were Blaze Bryant, Willie Terry, Andrea Cunliffe, Lavender, and and Mark Dunley with the headlines. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org.
0: Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.